Before I begin the talk this evening, I'd just like to uh, kind of let you know about uh, what's happening, or we could say not happening, in regard to the fact that today is in the familiar calendar, the 31st of December 2018. Um, as some of you will know, having been on this retreat before, we don't necessarily um, sort of celebrate the new year at New Year. We do it when it seems more convenient for us. Um, and I hope that's okay with you. Um, but basically, whether or not it is, we'll be taking some time to reflect on and engage with the process of what could be significant and important in marking the turning of the new year at the end of the retreat on the uh, the la end of the last full day, and we'll see how that will go. Um, it'll be somewhat similar to things we've done before for those of you who've been here before, and it might also be a little different too. But um, with regard to that, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing, New Year. It's a little arbitrary. I mean, it's already happened in New Zealand where I come from. They've gone to bed on the day of the uh, the first already, not that far ahead, and so... Uh, today in one sense then is the second night of our retreat and uh, one of the interesting things with life is that it doesn't always quite go the way you want and when I opened up my screen it seemed to have disappeared a whole body of material um, <laughs> which makes one think well gosh you shouldn't really rely on these things should you um, so I'm just going to take a moment and see if I can find out where that's gone um, don't go away Ah, there it is, gosh. It happens in my mind quite frequently, which is why I, I use one of these things. But when one of these things does it as well, it's like, where do we go from here? <laughs> There's a, a cartoon... Uh, from the Calvin and Hobbes sort of tradition, shall we say, of uh, great teachings. Uh, some of you will be familiar with Calvin and Hobbes. It, kind of the, a lot of the action takes place in the cartoon in the mind of a six-year-old boy who's a rather interesting character and involves his uh, his stuffed pet um, tiger coming to life. And anyway, it moves between different worlds and on this particular occasion in the cartoon Calvin and Hobbes his tiger friend are sitting watching television and from off screen or outside the box comes the voice and clearly of his mother saying Calvin go and play outside next box Calvin and Hobbes still sitting there looking at the television Calvin I said turn off the television go outside and play next screen they're still sitting there final screen of the uh, of the, the cartoon Calvin and Hobbes are being thrown and are flying out through the front door obviously being hurled out by his mum and he's calling back as he flies out the door it's too real And there's something kind of touching about that, that we can perhaps recognize how it is for ourselves to begin to engage with our life more fully and directly, to turn off the engagement with the image of screens and that kind of safe but rather distant relating and come into direct contact with our life and its 
immediacy. And so I think it's helpful as we enter and begin to move more deeply into this retreat and this journey that we're engaged in, to to reflect on and to contemplate a little how that is for us and what goes on in this process where we could say or we could understand it that kind of life gets in our face. It's sort of there in a way that's often challenging, that's often intense, that sometimes it feels a little more than we can handle or want to handle. It can be painful. It can be harsh. It can be overstimulatingly exciting sometimes. And what we might notice is that as human beings, we're, we're sensitive. We feel, we're touched, we're impacted. And it's not easy to find a place, a condition, a situation in which we are able to sustainably be at ease, to be comfortable, to be in a condition that doesn't challenge us. That's, for most of us, not something that's regularly available. And one of the effects of this, one of the results that leads to, is a, a sense of wanting to withdraw, or perhaps to, to numb that sensitivity. It's something that often is taking place uh, unconsciously, and we might notice it as a want, as, as a sort of the movement to, to pull away, to want to go somewhere else to not stay here, as Catherine was speaking about, pointing to some, some aspects of what she touched on last night. And yet there's also a way in which we kind of, it's like almost withdrawing from the conscious contact with our experience. It's not just that we're trying to go somewhere else, we don't want to stay here, it's that even if we're here, we start to shut down or become distant from the sensitivity of our system because the truth is of course we can't go somewhere else where the sensitivity doesn't come with us we can't actually get away in that in that way and i think it's important to reflect on this because it's also the case that at times for some of us we can start to relate to and make use of the process of meditation or of being on retreat as a way of starting, uh, sort of maybe hoping or wishing to be able to avoid, to escape or to get a safe distance from our experience, to somehow subdue it. And there's, there's a real difference between being able to make space with our experience and to be able to meet our experience in space where we're we're still really facing it. We're turned to, we're oriented towards it, and we're engaged with it. But we're recognizing, oh, it needs a lot of space. And sometimes that's a skillful orientation. But that's very different from when we actually find ourselves at some level wanting to turn away, or to not be touched by, to to seek for calm, for quiet, for what we call concentration or samadhi. Samadhi, it's such a sweet word, isn't it? It's the word in the sort of the in the Buddha's teachings that refers to this quality of established and stable calm and collectedness and unification and it's one of those things that uh, you sort of think, Oh yeah, if I could have a bit more of that, everything would be good. And of course actually 
it's not a bad thing to have a bit more of in almost any situation. But if the, the movement towards it comes from a place of wanting not to be touched, or wanting not to be impacted, that's not really going to serve us. And I think it's kind of interesting to reflect on, you know, how, how, we, how we want often, you know, our mind to be quiet. Such a common thing about when people come to a retreat and even when they are clearly invited to just notice if their mind is or isn't quiet. And there's no instruction that says, quiet your mind or make the thinking stop. How so often the reflections, the observations, the evaluations of practice are based on how much of that activity goes on. And it points to the fact that it's really uncomfortable for us, most of us, much of the time, to simply be exposed to the activity of our mind. And I think that really shows and makes very clear how we can't move away from external things and expect to get away from what's uncomfortable because the thinking process is so inner, in a sense, we're not going to move away from that. We can learn, of course, to handle it skillfully and to, to support a calming and a quieting of certain patternings within that. But the practice we're engaged in and really the true orientation of this practice is not to escape but to open to our life. And this requires our heart to be tender. We've all had the experience of what we call unwanted, what we call pain, what we call difficulty. And because we're not always aware of the unconscious mechanisms that are deeply sort of trained and habituated biological survival mechanisms that respond to difficulty and challenge by tightening and contracting, we tend to unconsciously find ourselves hardening and armoring ourselves in response to that which is challenging or difficult. And the effect of this is becoming somewhat numb, somewhat distant, somewhat disconnected. And it creates a certain sense of safety or a sense of protectedness. At least it seems to create that. And of course, it may be that it was, to a significant degree, for some of us, perhaps many of us, necessary as a, as a, as a young human being, as a child, as an infant. That may have been the only available response in situations where we maybe didn't have the support we needed from an adult who could help us hold the intensity of experience that was arising. And so it's important if we notice the sense of tightening, of hardening, whether felt in the, in, in the very tissue of the body or in the way the mind kind of becomes rigid in certain reactivities, that we don't judge it or ourselves, but we become interested in it. We start to turn towards it. Because although it holds or it seems to offer the hope or maybe holds out the promise of some protection and some safety, because we at least feel somewhat robust or somehow as if we're protected from that which is difficult. There's also a, a 
pain and a grief and a frustration, I think, where we at some level are aware of the loss of our sensitivity and the connection that comes through that sensitivity. The, the, the human condition is such that we can lose contact with the sense of our relatedness and our connectedness because we withdraw from the sensory impingement because we're seeing or feeling it as impingement. In fact, it's also its communication, its resonance, its relationship that's coming to us through those channels, those doorways, through sight and sound and smell and taste and touch, as we were just sensing into this morning in the instructions with the Kinchino. This is also where connection comes through, where we're touched, where we can feel the earth or the warmth of another being's presence. And the absence of being able to feel that is painful. And yet it's also scary for us to begin to feel more deeply. We both need and I think want, when we start to understand what's happening, we need and want contact with our tender heart and yet Some part of us is really not at all convinced that it's a good idea to allow ourselves to be open and to be touched and to be impacted. Many years ago when I was teaching a retreat here um, in the summer, on a hot, in fact probably a very hot, Massachusetts summer day, I I walked down to Gaston Pond and uh, as I was walking on the path, at some point ahead of me, maybe three, four yards in front of me, do you think in yards here or is it feet? Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, it it works here, okay, okay, good, good, sorry, I know it's not meters, but uh, yeah, okay, Um, I saw on the path ahead of me a snake. And it was substantial, like something like this. And I don't know, you know, that's how I remember it. And of course, I was immediately both excited. We don't have snakes in New Zealand. And a little bit worried, like, wow, that looks like a big snake. But I was fascinated. And so I, I kind of thought I should probably not get any closer. But at the same time, I wanted to. So I took another step. And then, of course, my mind started to think about all the stories in the Buddha's teaching about snakes. You know, the fact that you can get a snake confused with a rope, and that's really problematic, particularly if you think it's a rope and you pick it up and it turns out to be a snake, you're going to be in trouble. And it's also kind of embarrassing if you think it's a snake and it turns out to be a rope and you've been really worried, but it was actually harmless. So all that kind of, of course, came, came into my mind very quickly um, as I was just looking at and taking a couple more steps and as I got closer, I realized it kind of was and wasn't a snake, in that it was a snake's skin. It had been a snake, and at a certain point it was a snake. It was certainly on and part of a snake, but it wasn't at that moment inhabited by a living snake. And what struck me in that moment, and why why I'm speaking about this, is just this reflection and sense which... I find myself coming back too often that, wow, that's quite something to have to get out of your skin. Really. And of course, we know, if we reflect on this, and 
that, that you know a snake has to shed its skin in order to grow. It's got this lovely protective layer, but it has to climb out of it every year because actually otherwise it can't grow and it will die inside that skin if it can't escape it. And of course, when I was thinking about that, it can't come out with another skin that's nice and hard and tough and scaly like the other one because that wouldn't be any bigger. It's got to come out kind of somehow soft and vulnerable and probably really hoping that there aren't some hawks coming past right now or whatever else might be a threat to its well-being and survival. And the sense of, oh, so what does that mean for us as human beings? And what might that have to say about this process of meditation? Because what happens, whether we might wish it or not, as we keep coming back into contact with our experience, as we keep noticing the departure and the movement out and away to all sorts of places, delightful and uh, tragic as they you know, seem to be, but the coming back in, slowly what happens in that process is that there's a kind of a, a softening, a moistening of our experience of our, or our sensitivity through inhabiting consciously with presence, embodying our life directly. And it's like attentiveness, consciousness, presence. It's like moisture to dry soil. That which was less alive than it could be, starts to become again more alive. And it's, it's curious how that happens in a certain way, quite organically. It's not what we say we're trying to do. It's not something we can do by trying it to do. Soften up, you tough old sort of beings, you. you know, it doesn't quite work like that, but somehow just coming into contact again and again with our experience, feeling what it's like. Not at the kind of relatively safe distance of thinking about it, of conceiving it, and either objectifying or conceptualizing the experience where we're sort of off at a safe distance, you know, kind of looking at it from over here. Hmm, okay, something going on. But actually we're right up close, being intimate with our experience. it starts to open us equally as the experience itself begins to open up. So what is that for us? How is that for us, for you, as you go through these days? Are there moments where you perhaps feel a sense of the, the, the sharp coldness on the cheek in a way where one doesn't just go, ah, it's cold, or... Actually, it's not that cold for Massachusetts in December, but whatever one goes, it's like, oh, cold. Or just, oh, what's that like? To be open, to be sensitive, to feel. Or one's feet on the ground, do we start to notice that there's a, there's a quality, maybe not in every step, in every moment, where, where the sinking into that there isn't so much a sense of a boundary or a hardness where there's me standing on this, but there's more just a softening into. As if we didn't have quite so much skin. And that, again, sounds like a scary condition. It doesn't sound like I'm not recommending anything directly like that as such. It's not that we have to act out on the snake. 
sort of image of shedding the skin. But tuning into, becoming interested in it, starting to really recognize and feel the value of that quality of sensitivity that so easily gets married with a sense of vulnerability or danger. Because it's not been something that we've been supported to handle when little or learnt to handle as adults. And so part of this practice involves taking a risk. Actually it involves taking quite a few risks, but the one of the particular topic of the moment is that risk of what's it like to feel things that we don't want to feel. Not just to kind of stay somewhat in the approximate location of, not too distant from, not running away screaming from, though sometimes we might feel like that. But what is it to actually become interested, to be impacted by the experience? So many things in our personal world, in our bodily life, in the, in the world of human life, that we inhabit, that we may not wish to encounter. And the way we can often relate to the situation is that we're kind of embattled. We're kind of protecting, we're kind of defending, we're kind of facing in order to fight, in order to handle so many things that are coming. And of course, practice is challenging. It's, it's not easy. We, we, we say this a lot. I think we could probably never say it too many times. It's not easy to do what we're doing here. Most people will never even do something like this for a day, let alone the two and a half days we've been here or the nine days we're going to be here. And so acknowledging that, oh yeah, this is challenging. Watching or being aware of how we start to orient if we're somehow going into battle, trying to battle our way through this. It's, you know, it's understandable we might. In fact, the Buddha used uh, images and metaphors that suggested one of the, I think, uh, when we sort of are reflecting on the challenging nature of the process we're engaged in, this, this one used to always, and does kind of speak to me and perhaps to you, he, he, he talked about the, the process of training, and sometimes he used the word taming of the mind. It's, it's kind of reactive, out of controlness. He talked about it as if we were to fight a thousand warriors on a thousand battlefields a thousand times. And it's kind of like, okay, this, you know, this, this sort of involves, I'm going to need some weapons and some armor and, you know, I probably could do with a few, you know. And it's an interesting image about how we might think of practice in our mind. And sometimes that might inform our relationship to the process. Um, and sometimes in a helpful way, but for Many of us, I think it's probably not the most useful metaphor. Because, of course, if it's my mind that I'm in a battle with, or trying to subdue, then there's a severe risk that we actually are relating to ourselves in a way that's potentially unkind, or maybe even harmful. And so I was reflecting on this and recent times and um, I thought well okay so the, the Buddha had this metaphor about a thousand warriors on a thousand battlefields a thousand times and sometimes that's a useful one for us 
But historically, as we understand the story, he came from in in in, in the the caste system of India from the sort of the the warrior caste. So of course he would be likely to think of warrior metaphors and images. It seemed to me. And I thought, well, maybe what if he came from the merchant caste and. He, he might have thought that so did this practice, it might have been to negotiate a thousand sort of merchandise purchase contracts with a thousand suppliers a thousand times. And we kind of feel, oh, that feels kind of different. And it's a bit like that sometimes, isn't it? We're kind of, we're kind of it's really complicated. We're trying to figure out, you know, and make sure we don't end up getting a bad deal out of it or, 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 or whatever's going on there. It's like, oh, okay. Or maybe if he was from the servant caste, he'd have said, well, you know, it's like having to clean a thousand toilets and a thousand palaces a thousand times. And sometimes it's like that as well, isn't it? It's like, gosh, you know, look what we encounter in us. Or if he came from the Brahmin caste, he may have said that it would be like having to offer a thousand prayers to a thousand deities a thousand times. And another whole sense of, oh, what might that be as a way to hold my practice? And what I find really helpful in that reflection, and I hope it's of some value for you, is it's kind of like, yes, it's challenging. And the way we might orient to that can have some very different qualities and flavors according to the kind of metaphors and images we bring to that kind of sense of being challenged. None of those particular Challenges would be something easy. And so, too, this process of learning, exploring and discovering what it means to be more awake, more fully and deeply conscious and present, embodied and human. This involves the experience of our body that's not comfortable. This is one of the challenges. This is one of the places we might find ourselves battling at times. And so, just to say a little bit about this. It's easy to imagine, and there's a certain amount of truth in the fact that there's discomfort because we're sitting in some unfamiliar posture for unreasonably long periods of time, it would seem. You know, just so you know, there's nothing sacred about the schedule. We just made it up. We make it up different every time we do one of these things. Um, the intention is that there's a bit of a stretch for us, that it, but it's not like there's some kind of magic in 40 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour or anything like that. It's just, I mean, the Buddha never had a watch. I can't imagine he ever sat for 45 minutes, except by accident. But sitting in a posture and staying for a while challenges us in a certain way. And sometimes it's because we're not familiar with it, but some of it is just to do with the nature of the body. And the Buddha said with regard to this, once, and I think very very wisely, and in a way that piques my interest, he said, the pain of the body is disguised by the postures. Sounds a little cryptic. But what I understand is meant by this is that 
the the fact that the body quite naturally experiences discomfort and pain as part of how it just is, we avoid noticing that by keeping on changing posture. If we choose to not change posture, we start to notice that, oh, this body gets uncomfortable. It doesn't take long for us to encounter that truth. It's not because you're sitting like this. Actually, there's lots of people sitting different than you, and they're getting discomfort as well. If you get a really good quality, comfortable mattress, the best you could buy, and you lie on it and you don't move, actually it starts to become painful if you don't move. If you stay long enough, actually your very tissue starts to break down. This happens really in a painful and difficult way for people who are ill or elderly and unable to move. It's like, oh, that just happens all by itself in a way if you don't keep moving. So part of what's happening is coming into contact with that aspect of bodily life that we tend to try and avoid or escape or in fact just deny. And so there's this process of turning towards and saying, okay, am I willing to be touched by that which is difficult in in the body in this case? Am I willing to be affected by it if it's part of the truth of my experience? It's not all of it, of course. There can be sweetness and delight and deliciousness in my body. But if I'm not willing to feel what is uncomfortable, then the tendency is to withdraw from the experience unconsciously, but to withdraw... And for the very sensitivity of the body to start to be lost. And in that, of course, our access to the sweetness and the delight that is also possible to be known in the body is also lost. So when there is discomfort and pain, just turning the attention toward. Noticing even the language pain, we've already decided it's, it's a something and we probably already don't like it. And actually, here we we invited to just notice, oh, it's unpleasant, it's not easy, oh. My tendency is to tighten around it. That's what we do. Can I soften? Can I breathe? Can I open? And if I need to, knowing I have permission to change the posture, to make an adjustment, it's not a battle. We're not going to win by overcoming the condition of our body. but to really sense what our relationship to the body is in this. We can be so hard on our body and on ourselves, simply because part of the experience we encounter in it and through it is uncomfortable and unwanted, is painful and scary to us. And because of that, we kind of turn on it with harshness, turn on ourselves with harshness so easily and quickly. There's a story of Nasruddin, who's a, uh, a Sufi teaching figure, both a wise man and a fool. And the story is told that on one occasion, Nasruddin was uh, talking with some friends about his donkey and saying, I had this donkey, it was, it was a wonderful donkey. Um, it, was able, it was so helpful with all the things I needed to do, but it was costing me so much and all the food it was eating. So I thought I'd just try feeding it half. And, you know, it was fine. So I thought, wow, that's great. Still doing all the work, feeding it half. I have it again. And uh, still it seemed it was fine. It was just kept going. And so uh, I, you know, I eventually got it down to one teaspoon of food a day. And, you know, he said to his friends, well, you know, if that donkey hadn't died, I'm sure I could have got it living on nothing. 
it's like as we withdraw our attention from our body, it feels like, oh, it's doing fine, we're getting by, it still works. But something dies, something is lost. And this attentiveness and presence that we're bringing, this is actually the primary nourishment for the fullness of well-being of the body, the heart and the mind. It's not just so that we can see what's going on because then we can learn from it. It's also, it's, it's actually the, the nourishment that's needed by this organic system. It needs that. It needs to be filled out with that. And in that, it's not just the nourishment, but it's the expression of our care, our love, our connection, just as an art giving nourishment to another or to ourself. We could understand it as an expression of care, of nourishment, of affection. And it might seem kind of confusing or contradictory that actually letting myself feel the pain is an act of kindness to myself. It doesn't sound like it. I'd rather not have to feel it. But to lose contact with our sensitivity is a greater loss. To lose contact with our aliveness is a profound loss. And there is a kindness in the courage and willingness to inhabit, to feel, and to begin to regain, to rediscover the fullness of embodied life in which this heart, mind and body are not held apart or experienced as in somehow conflict with or contradiction to each other. So there's one way in which we can kind of push away, judge and react against our body for the pain, against our experience, for the pain, the discomfort we experience in the body. It's really... I find touching to reflect on the condition that I first encountered people with, with that we in the West call leprosy. I was traveling in, in India as a young man and I spent a little time volunteering in a street clinic in Calcutta. And I was there spending some time with my grandmother who I hadn't met until I was in my early 20s and went to India. And um, working with these, these people... I learned something about leprosy that I'd never understood before, because as maybe some of you will have the sense, it's this kind of, kind of quite, quite sort of, I don't know, horrible or unpleasant disease where bits of your body fall off. That was kind of my rather uninformed knowledge of it. And what I found out that that's not the case, actually. Leprosy doesn't make parts of your body fall off at all. It just kills the nerves. So you can't feel pain. And so if you cut yourself or you burn yourself and it, basically an affliction of mostly poor, uneducated people who don't have a lot of access to or knowledge around hygiene. So there's cuts, there's injuries, there's accidents, followed by infection, and then the loss of tissue. And it was so poignant and touching for me to realize at the point where it dawned on me, speaking with some of the medical people there, that in fact the thing that would make the biggest difference to the life of a sufferer, person suffering leprosy was to be able to feel pain. Because what it says is, although we don't like hearing it, what it says is, pay attention here. Pay attention here. It says it really well. 
And we go, no, no, I don't want to pay attention. I don't want to feel that. But it's saying it. It doesn't mean there's always something wrong, but it means pay attention here and see, is there something that needs to be taken care of? Because the danger, of course, if we withdraw from our sensitivity, is that we won't know what's going on that needs taken care of. And there's a kind of a, almost, it's a kind of a, horrible term in a way but it's kind of like almost a, 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 an emotional or somatic leprosy that we can experience whereby we, we lose contact with the impact that's happening it's still happening but we're just not aware of it and becoming aware of it feeling into it actually allows us to take care of what's happening in a way that we can't if we don't feel that doesn't mean that, of course, there aren't times and places for some of us where we need to really clearly recognize that the intensity of what's going on or the dynamics around what's going on are saying to us, actually, it's not useful, it's not skillful to turn towards or to go into that which is painful or difficult. Sometimes what's wise and skillful is to really back off and to give it a lot of space. But again, the difference is that we back off, we don't turn around and face the other way. So you can actually stay engaged with something with a lot of room. And only when you feel, if it seems like it's actually okay, that you come a little closer in those situations. Sometimes that's important to be able to make that call. So the other way that for many of us we'll find ourselves being quite hard on ourselves is the ways we well, we might tend to blame ourselves, judge ourselves, be harsh towards ourselves for the things we've done that we regard as mistakes or failures or things that weren't so skillful. This is how it is for all of us. We do things that we later on can look back on and say, hmm, that wasn't so good, helpful, skillful, wise. The interesting thing, of course, here, not of course, but an interesting aspect of it, it seems to me, is that whatever we do, at some level, at least if I, I look and see for myself, and I trust it's similar for you, there's a way in which we're endeavoring to serve or, contri or to take care of whatever ever it is we're concerned about. We just don't necessarily ne always know how to do that in a way that's effective. Even that whole process of withdrawing is an attempt to take care of ourselves. And as I said, it may have a place sometimes, and certainly earlier in life. But ultimately it becomes a process in which we're imprisoned. So it doesn't take care of us. Even when we're selfish, when we're foolish, when we're reactive, at some level it's an attempt to take care of ourselves or take care of something or someone or a situation that we care about. And so there's an important place for forgiveness here. The avidya that Catherine spoke of last night, blindness is another way we could translate it, not just ignorance, but blindness, or just not seeing, not seeing not adverting to what's actually happening, clearly. 
as a result of that, it's, it's, well, this is understood as something that we all have, that we, through the process and the journey of, of waking up, can transform and can free ourselves from the effects of. But we all begin with this condition and place. And it might seem that it's kind of unfortunate and, you know, someone's organized it really badly if everyone starts off from a place of, it seems, a significant degree of blindness. And yet it's also the very mechanism through which learning takes place. And uh, one of my favorite stories um, involves the uh, a, a student of, of Zen meditation who after many years of diligent practice, has finally been given the opportunity for a short interview with the, 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 the master, the most senior teacher and most beloved master in, in, the, in, in, the, in, their, in their school, in their community. And um, he knows he'll just have a few minutes and the chance to ask a few questions. And he's excited, but he's also kind of scared because this, this, this Zen master is known to be quite ferocious and um, fierce. And so he, he goes and he bows, bows three times and, and, and looks up and she is sitting there like a mountain and she's not smiling. And he, 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 he says, Master, Master, can you tell me, what's the most important thing to cultivate? And she looks at him and she, hmm, discernment, wise judgment. She says, oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, that, of course, that makes sense. She, he says, can you, can you tell me how do you develop discernment and wise judgment? She goes, <laughs> experience. Of course, of course, of course. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. <laughs> Lack of discernment. So in a way, whatever we do here has its value if we see this as a process of learning, and not just here in our retreat, but in our life, if we see this as a process of learning, then everything has its value. Because if there's something and I'm finding out how to handle this particular kind of experience, and I try and approach with it, well, if it seems useful, well, that's great. It's useful. If I try and approach to it, and it turns out it's not useful. Oh, well, then I've learned that in this situation, that's not useful. Hey, that's useful. <laughs> From that orientation, making mistakes is going to be part of the natural process. And in fact, there's part of the, that sense of the, the freshness and openness of, 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 of the way we're invited to practice is that we could have a sense of what it is to play here to play in this field because play is somewhere we're allowed to make mistakes where we understand we're still learning where we don't have to get it right and it I think allows a much more bright and kind of uplifted sense of the engagement even though play can be challenging and hard and difficult and you might get bruises if you played with the kind of kids I played with at school anyway you know um that's how it is. But there's learning that takes place in that. So first of all, we're making room for the fact that we do mess up and we will. And we can learn from it. 
Second is to actually see that that which is challenging to us is not happening to us because we somehow got it wrong. At a certain fundamental level, all of us encounter stuff that is hard. And the Buddha spoke about this. You know, he spoke about birth, aging, sickness, and death as conditions all of our bodies are subject to. And in fact, I want to update my translation. And uh, many of you will be familiar with, as I was for many years, birth, aging, sickness, death. And I always used to think, well, it's funny because I got sick a long time before I ever started to age, um, as far as I could tell anyway. I'm sure the Buddha would have had them in the right order. He's quite particular in that sort of thing. And then I heard another translation which said, birth, aging, decay, and death. And it's like, oh yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, sickness you get better from sometimes. Decay? Uh-uh. <laughs> and it's like, oh, we're all subject to that. You know, it doesn't sound like great news, but there's something about saying, oh, yeah, all of us. Not just the ones that ate the right food or did the right, you know, exercise. That might help, but even if we eat all the right food and do all the right exercise, we can't avoid that and the Buddha spoke equally about the condition of the human heart that we're subject to to sorrow pain, grief, lamentation and despair it's like oh gosh yeah they didn't put that on the brochure did they? And come along to meditation retreat experience sorrow, pain, grief lamentation and despair you know, we might have had a few more spaces on the retreat the waiting list might have been shorter it's unavoidable that we encounter such things and again, we can often spend so much time wondering, how could I have organized it or someone else could have organized my life so that didn't happen? As far as I can tell, there's no way out of it. Not just because the Buddha suggested it, but just by reflecting for myself that, in fact, if you love something or someone in this life, at some point you're going to be separated from them or that thing because someone, through accident, through choice, through death and it will be painful and grievous to be separated from something or someone that we love that's for sure and if you don't love something or someone in your life that will be painful and grievous just by itself that will hurt so it's like I look at that and I, think, I can't find a third option you're going to love and it's going to hurt you're going to not love and it's going to hurt I mean General wisdom suggests it's better to love and hurt than not love and hurt, but that's kind of a whole different thing. The point here is that, oh, the fact that it hurts sometimes isn't because of how you did it or didn't do it. It's because that's how it is for us. Again, that's not all of how it is. Of course, there's a lot of our emotional life that is rich and beautiful and sweet, or can be. But turning to and including that, oh, it's not because you did it wrong. It's not something you need to give yourself a hard time for. It's unavoidable. And likewise, the Buddha spoke of the condition of our, our mind to be associated with that which is disliked, to be separated from that which is liked, and not getting what we want. Did anybody ever have that experience? Did it happen to you today? Yeah, probably. 
all of that, if contemplated appropriately, if kind of acknowledged, and it's something that I find actually a real relief. And when I first encountered the Dharma teachings, if someone just says, yeah, actually that happens, doesn't it? Rather than everyone kind of pretending that it doesn't happen, or that when you've succeeded in your life, then it won't happen, and anybody it's happening to must have kind of, you know, they're obviously not doing very well. Rather than actually, no, this is part of our human inheritance. It's not all of it. But if we can include it, if we can open to it, then we are also able to open to what is beautiful, to what is sweet. And there can be a tenderness in that opening, a poignancy. But over time one comes to trust that that tenderness, that poignancy, that sometimes scary sense of vulnerability when we allow ourselves to be impacted, to be affected, because we are beings. The nature of whom is to be affected, just as it is the nature of these beings that we are to respond to have a responsive capacity. As we start to trust in that process and that possibility that takes place, we, we can start to see, although it's a risk that this tenderness, this touching of our life more intimately, more sensitively, more Intimately, sensitively, I'm sure there was another word, but anyway. That sense of just the touch, the sense of touching. that There's a, a sense of a losing of a, a hard, defining sense of boundariedness that goes with that whole process of withdrawing from or attempting to hold herself apart from, that it creates a sense of a boundaring, a separateness. And to lose it, it at first seems that we might be vulnerable. We might be fearing that softening, that we might dissolve into some sort of undifferentiated mush and lose our particularity or our substantiality and our solidity, which is not actually what happens. Although sometimes it might feel that way. Much more, I think, we can begin to discover that there's a natural fluidity in the human condition, in the human heart and mind and body. That is permeable to life, that is permeated by life. And that as it is more open and less less defended in a kind of rigidified or hardened or tightened sort of way, the flow and the movement of life opens up. It opens up to reveal a way in which this life is unbound, is not bound by experience or the habitual patterns of reactivity that arise in response to it, that is held in a, in a field 
of of kindness and of wisdom when held so that allows it to to open that reveals not a, a loss of of particularity and form but a loss of the boundariedness around it and that offers us what we start to perhaps recognize as infinite sacred possibility the safety and security of holding in and holding back in a sense of a boundaried condition ultimately doesn't serve us and to open into the fluidity of life to be touched by it to be tenderized by it offers something profound and deeply sweet and equally mysterious. So I'd like to finish with a poem by Thomas Tranström, who's a Swedish poet who... uh, died just a few years ago, entitled Romanesque Arches. Inside the huge Romanesque church, the tourists jostled in the half-darkness. Vault opened behind vault, disappearing behind each other. No complete view. A few candle flames flickered, An angel with no face embraced me and whispered through my whole body, Don't be ashamed of being human. Be proud. Inside you, vault opens behind vault, endlessly. You will never be complete. That's how it's meant to be. Blind with tears, I was pushed out in the sun, drenched piazza. Together with Mr. and Mrs. Jones, Mr. Tanaka and Signora Sabatini. And inside all of them, vault opened behind vault, endlessly. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments together.
So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we find the courageous, tender heart that can open and be touched by our life more deeply. And may we come to know the unbounded openness that is the natural expression of our awakening for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings and all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.